Hi, and welcome to Radio Free XP. It's Tuesday, January 16th, and today we're talking to Brian Kroger. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. As always, we're joined by Jesse Alford. Jesse, great to have you on, Brian. You know, what I experienced when I worked at Pivotal was that it was a magnet for people who got it. That was just like the most crazy thing is that anyone who kind of got that model, you found out that you were aligned across a huge amount of stuff. And so in Radio Free XP, of course, the first thing we want to hear is how in the world did you get into this business? Jesse and I think really deeply in terms of like XP practice, and we know that you know that. So I'm going to I'm going to stop talking and just like, what's your origin story with Pivotal and where were you and how did you take it out into the world? Yeah, Uh, I spent 10 years in the Air Force, uh, active duty Air Force. I was an intelligence officer. And for the first seven years, I used really terrible software to conduct targeting operations around the globe. And uh, I just saw the results of terrible software, right? Uh, You know, Andreessen talks about software is eating the world. And usually we talk about disruption on the Fortune 500. Uh, It's one thing to lose profits and revenues. It's an entirely different thing when your cost of delay is measured in lives. So I saw, you know, missions fail first and foremost, right? Whether that's bad guys getting away or us not achieving our objectives. I also saw people die, whether that was American troops or innocent civilians all because of bad software. And so I just had this passion that, you know, I thought I thought when I was joining to be an intelligence officer, it was going to be like Jason Bourne or something, you know, not quite, but like thought I would have this really great technology. And I walked in to my first office and I could barely get my email to load. And that's the state of the, the DoD software ecosystem today. So um, after seven years of doing that, I, I saw a particularly egregious incident. Um, and that caused me to hang up my Intel badge and transfer to what's called acquisitions, but that's where they procure software for the Air Force. And I got myself assigned to the targeting program office where they build the targeting software. And on the first day, I called DIU-X, Defense Innovation Unit, uh, and said, hey, let's work together to build really great software. And I had done a bunch of research and uh, ended up finding out about Pivotal, and DIU was working with Pivotal as well. So that was my introduction to Pivotal. We, we started a contract together, uh, and I jumped into pairing. And what was it like? Uh, it, it was different than anything I'd ever done before. Um, it, it was really great in that uh, you know we were able to, I started on a product team, worked my way up to managing a portfolio of products, and then eventually running the entire, what became you know the Kessel Run Labs. And uh, in doing that, I was able to just accelerate my growth. You know, you, you hear about the 10,000 rule. One, I just worked crazy insane hours and crammed 10,000 hours into a couple of years. But uh, outside of that, like each hour was just so much more impactful uh, in terms of my personal growth. And there's also like a natural, you might call a uh, accountability system in your pair, especially when you're doing pairing for growth. I know there's other reasons to pair, but pairing for growth uh, in that you know, we constantly have this feedback loop of how you're doing. I love Alex Hormozzi's definition of learning, which is same condition, different behavior. And there's a lot of like learning for learning's sake that goes on in the ecosystem for sure. And um, this was always very focused. Like I'm learning for an objective and then I have a pair to tell me, did my behavior change? And uh, so that that was really critical to me because I had to rapidly grow from, I was a targeteer, I knew nothing about software, to running a product team, running a portfolio of products, and running an entire lab. And so I got to pair with a product manager, uh, a portfolio owner, and then a, a, an associate director at a lab's office. 
Okay, let's, so let's, I'm gonna, I just want to pause, right? Because you were not a native pivot. You, you were randomly side <laughs> injected into this whole thing, right? I, that's how I came to Pivotal too. I just want to ask a few mm -hmm. questions. Yeah. So first of all, name check Alex Hormuzi. Giant fan. Radio Free XP is a giant fan of Hormuzi. Let's just say that out loud. Okay, what would have prepped you? Like I came in sideways and I spent three years in awe. I just wandering the building where I worked literally in awe at the production competence that I saw. I just couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. Okay, what would have prepared you to walk in that place and be effective? Because you said every day and every hour was just radically more effective. What? So you said accountability is a key thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's the whole world out there who doesn't have any idea. How would you tell someone to prep? Hey, I'm going to go into a pairing environment. How would I? And, and there are people who say that that will teach me faster, like high density teaching is how I actually think of it. Yeah. So what would, how would you, how would you recommend you have many children? Like, how would you recommend your children prep for this? You got to focus on the traits that one would generally describe as being coachable. So the people that thrive in labs are people that are coachable. The more coachable you are, the better you're going to do. Um, pr pretty basic. I mean, it's that way with anything. There's nothing profound here. Uh, I just think that a lot of people come into it with an ego. I think a unique advantage that we had at Kessel Run is all of the practitioners we were bringing in, they, they couldn't have egos. They had never done anything. So like, uh, it was very easy for me, like just humbling experience to walk into the room with some of the caliber of people that you're dealing with. Um, I think it, you know, I saw other labs customers and I, I think the degree to which they were successful was always dependent on how humble um, the leaders and the practitioners were. And I think the leaders really set the tone for that as well. So, so I think that's another important thing that I would emphasize if you're in the leadership side of it is making sure you prep your people for having a growth mindset. Are you a fan of Turn the Ship Around by David Marquet? Yeah, absolutely. We've had him on the show and we believe that's the straight leadership model sh you should adopt. That's mm -hmm. it. If you want it. So if I said, hey, here's a guy, Brian Kroger, who has a company based on it, and, I, and I'm, I make a recommendation to every single pivot who would follow you into the industry or into federal, would you recommend them using Turn the Ship Around as a good model for leadership? 100%. Yeah. We, one of my favorite books on leadership. It's in my top five list. Yeah. So we, we fundamentally at Radio Free XP believe there are a very narrow set of books. Eric Reese Lean Library, Kent Beck's XP. Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference and David Marquet's Turn the Ship Around and that you could take over the whole world with those five books, four books. Yeah. Plug for the Lean series because it, it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't even get included in the Lean series is, uh, is the Lean Enterprise. Of all of the books in the series, I believe that that is the best one when you're dealing with large enterprises. Obviously, it's in the title, but like just in general, the way that it's put together is, is phenomenal and it was infinitely more valuable to me than than lean startup and startup way. That's the whole point is the lean library is completely, it's a completely insane and comprehensive model for dealing with any transactional anything. It's just, so, it's like so totally crazy that it's that effective. Okay, I, I, I wanted to get that plug out because I don't think, Jesse, how many books run the world to you? Oh, about on that order. I have a couple others that I put in because I'm focused on some of the like several short sentences about writing, for example, is like there's there's this focus on production level, like hands on stuff that some of what you're talking about is is less focused on. But yeah, it's it's in that same zone of like you don't need that many. And the you know, one of the things we've heard a few times about Pivotal is just the amount of people using what you call wisdom from books. Just like, oh, wow, people are actually taking advice here. And I think that comes back to the coachability Brian is talking about. It's like we think a lot about what made Pivotal the way it was. And there are a ton of factors. But one of them was, I think, felt that the, the way we interviewed and selected people filtered for that coachability and that modest or at least controlled ego. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. 
I, in our talent operations side, you know, we're trying to recruit talent. The, one of the ways that we identify somebody that would be a good riser is based on reading. So like when we're targeting ad campaigns on social media and, and everywhere else, we're targeting people who are reading the same books as us. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact okay. that they're reading at all is one thing, but then yeah. the fact that they're reading the same books as us. Now, there are still people that are what I call like gluttons for information. They don't do the same condition, different behavior. They're just same condition, same condition. They go to all the conferences, read all the books. So you got to watch out for those people. But in general, it's, it's been a really effective strategy. Yeah. And so, I mean, I love employer branding, right? And so you're able to segment your market just off of LinkedIn, like who likes this book, right? You can advertise directly to them for employment. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so what's that market segmentation for just the people you want to talk to? What does that cost you? Uh, I'm the wrong person to ask on the cost, but it's, it's minuscule. I can tell you minuscule, that it's, right? very it's not even, it, it's a chore based cost. Like it's the cost of gum at a pivotal labs office. It's the cost of gum yeah. to target exactly who you want to talk to. And so the reason I'm so excited to talk about you is you've been out there doing it. You're using the model. You have to, you're encountering the real world in the most challenging environment. Okay. I'm going to pause right there. This is Radio Free XP. It's Thursday, January 16th, 2024. And we're talking to Brian Kroger about using XP and making companies out of it. When we when we broke, we were talking about being able to segment to, to exactly the people you want to hire. And what we were talking about is that you can segment on the social media networks for dirt cheap, for a minuscule amount of money, you can only advertise to people you want to. And in that case, you, we can segment out to people who believe in work cultures. And then you can have a conversation about a work culture without interviewing. Hey, we have a work culture. Okay, I'm going crazy and I, I, like, I have a commitment not to talk on these things, but Brian, like I was part of your team on Kessel Run. Mm-hmm. And I loved being on that team. That was some of the most gratifying work I have ever done my entire life anywhere because it was exactly as you said. I interviewed probably 50 or 60 people for your operations team. Mm-hmm. And we hired, you know, how many, five or six, right? And I worked with that team. We built it alongside each other and it was truly yes. glorious, right? And so I'll go down memory lane like that, but that was actually my real experience. At the time, it was glorious. I had a big fight. Like Mike, I had a career, possibly career ending fight on Kessel Run. Mm-hmm. in front of everyone. And I, I would have that fight a thousand times more, but I would be radically more effective, right? <laughs> and so it's possible to do in the federal government. If you're a listener to Radio Free XP and you're not a pivot, you have to understand how powerful these tools are. Brian, I'm just gonna turn it back over to you. What did you do on Kessel Run? I, and I want you to tell your story and I am going to force it into haleography if you don't tell it correctly. What did you do on Kessel Run? <laughs> yeah, so uh, a start big picture, like the mission, the why. So our mission was to transform the Air Operations Center. Air Operations Centers in the Air Force control uh, the theater air picture. Whether we're at war or at peace, um, they're controlling the entire airspace for a theater. And uh, the much like my targeting software, in fact, a lot of my targeting software is in the Air Operations Center. It is really poorly done. And you know, one of the first success stories that's public, so I can talk about it, was the tanker planner story where we built an application at Pivotal Labs, deployed it to a secret network, right? So networking and security restrictions off the charts. Uh, and we were able to do that in 120 days Um, The application immediately started saving one tanker per day. Um, These are the tankers that are used to do air-to-air refueling for all of the flight operations. Uh, That equates to something around like $200,000 per day in fuel savings. So the application paid for itself in a week. 
Um, but what's more is, you know, we kept iterating on that, got it to two tankers. Uh, and when you look at the potential opportunity cost of doing things from a waterfall perspective, you know, the, the cost of delay that would have been associated with sticking with the status quo there uh, was on the order of like $350 million dollars just in fuel. And that's just one app out of 20 that we built together. And so the uh, the thing that we're often overlooking, people say, I can't afford transformation, but what they really can't afford is waterfall and terrible software. So that was like the big first aha moment that really propelled Kessel Run into, into uh, what it became. Yeah. And I'm going to pause here because there's a technical way to look at this where we, what you did was totally heroic and you totally left out the fact that you pioneered a totally new model of continuous authorization mm -hmm. and, and that you did it with hard automation and that you had how many people were on Kessel Run at that time I mean it was a like six person product team half of which was pivots <laughs> yeah was like, right. so I don't know we, we had like 20 people in the early days maybe that's how it started that's certainly how it started but by the time you got continuous ATO how many people were in Kessel Run when that got signed we were probably at like 100 110 people okay and what what time uh, and by the time group? I that was in April of twenty, April of twenty eighteen. So we started in August of twenty seventeen. CATO was April twenty eighteen, and then by the time I left in uh, summer of twenty nineteen, we we're up to five hundred and fifty people. Okay, so let I, there's no one who can hear this story without really understanding the time and the scale in the federal government. You took one good idea, and we're gonna we're gonna give a term to it. You found a fully funded blue ocean. You found mm -hmm. three hundred and fifty million dollars laying around that a piece of software would just save. Did you mm -hmm. know? Did, did you have that figure as part of the justification, or was that like you found out afterwards how much money it could save? Yeah, we found out afterwards. I will say, you know, the revisionist history stories that get told about this project. It seems like we set goals and ran experiments. You know, like we had a hypothesis. Most of the time, it's just. I mean, blue ocean is the, like, there's so much waste. It, it doesn't even at some point make sense to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what to go after next. It's like, I can hit 300 million here, 200 here, 50 here, and you just go. Yeah, I think that's a um, full blown, hold on, Jet. That's a full blown bureaucratic hacker. Now, mm -hmm. whether we hit it right now or whether we end up there as its own show, what you have actually done is designed a bureaucratic hacking process informed by an intelligence agent who had to go buy his own software. Okay, we're just gonna pause everyone in the universe. We're talking to a guy who took one good idea that was just an iteration. Now, who originated the idea of Tanker Planner though? You gotta tell that story. Yeah, I mean, it's largely attributed to Eric Schmidt, uh, which is a crazy story, so. So your fate is tied up with the head of Google. Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> yeah, at the time he was the head of the Defense Innovation Board, um, but it was actually really cool. And you know, regardless of where people sit on some of the individuals that were on that board, they did really powerful things during their tenure. Um, there's a study out there called The Swap um, that's, that's definitely worth looking into. A lot of it's based on Kessel Run, but uh, yeah, so Eric Schmidt is visiting all of these DOD sites around the world. He goes to IED to Air Base in Qatar, where this Air Operations Center is. And DIU at the time was working with you all to actually build a planning application, like mission planning. Very complex. This is one of those things when you sit down in a boardroom and you're like, what should we build? And then you get the downward directed requirements. It was like, let's, let's tackle the hardest problem first, <laughs> right? And so they're building that app. Eric Schmidt's out visiting. He sees this whiteboard when he's walking by. He's like, what the heck is that? And they're like, oh, that's how we do tanker planning for you know, the entire theater on that whiteboard. And he was like, that is a software problem. Like that is an easy software problem to solve, easy. 
Uh, Ross Shaw was there, director of DIU. So he calls back to Enrique and the team and like, hey, I think you need to pivot to Tanker Planner. Uh, and so that was the first pivot. Um, and that 120 days actually includes the pivot, by the way. So they pivoted to Tanker Planner, deployed it by 120 days, and, and the rest is history. Good. If you're following along at home in the federal government in a military theater, when he says this a when he says this air operation command center, just go just go to Wikipedia and look up what these things are. These yeah. are the footprints of the entire American force projection system. It's not like a corner store. And so one guy with a lot of credibility says, make that a software problem. Another guy with some credibility turns around to another guy with some credibility, Enrique Odi, and says, make this a software problem. And he mm -hmm. gives it to you. No, and you, uh, the, the, the product team that was out in San Francisco. That's who got it, right? And yeah. how, how were you related to the product team as it started? How did you hear about I want to know the day that you got assigned to it. What was the story? So as I said, Enrique and I started talking when I first got assigned there. Um, I was originally working the biggest bureaucracy side of this, the acquisitions bureaucracy. So before we could, uh, Enrique, uh, you know, he had enough money to fund that experiment, the tanker planner experiment, but we didn't have money to keep going from there. So we had to get a major program of record with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to adopt this idea. So that was my initial job before I got to do my first product was hacking the acquisitions bureaucracy at Hanscom Air Force Base to get the AOC and targeting program offices to abandon their current waterfall project, which they had invested 10 years and uh, $550 million in. They were over budget. They didn't have any working software. 10 years in, $500 million spent. And they were asking for a two-year extension and another $250 million. Um, John McCain says no, and that was our opening to get them to convert over. Okay, I just, you're a bureaucratic hacker. You found this particular rot under this particular floorboard. If, if there's only a hundred whole problems in just the Air Force DOD, how many of them are rotten under the floorboards out of a hundred? 99. <laughs> Did you say 99? Yeah, I'm leaving room for one good one that I don't know about, but I don't right. know about it, so I can't say it definitively. Okay, so let's, let's zoom out a little bit from this. Like, that happened. You had uh, an incumbent military industrial complex contractor doing the incumbent contractor thing. I was involved mm -hmm. a little bit, and I recall that like the the testing and acceptance administration is really was also really oriented towards that type of thing where you hire somebody uh, at great expense and then they under deliver and you have to really hold them to account to make sure you got what you asked for because Congress has mm -hmm. passed a law that says you have to test to a certain standard before you can accept deliveries from these things. So you have, you have to navigate that whole thing and transform their understanding. I'll, I'll put a little mm -hmm. side note for anyone who has been involved in any kind of digital or agile transformation that like getting QA or whoever to change their behavior is a whole piece of this. But imagine if they had a law saying that they had to do and that they would like go back to be like, no, what we're doing must be done the way we're doing it because Congress said so. <laughs> and you have, yes. you have to work with those people to, to get a whole other concept of like how you can work together to deliver on the mission and so on. And yeah. as a note, Having a law actually is sometimes useful because a lot of places think that things have to be the way they are for abstract reasons with no ground truth that you can't go back to and renegotiate from. But the right. advantage of a place like the DOD is at least there's something solidly written down that you can go back to and say, like, actually, all you have to do is live up to this standard. You can solve this in an alternate yeah. way. So, yeah, we we should we should we should talk about this quick, because I think this is the most important part of the transformation is 
the bureaucracy in the government is the same as everywhere else. A lot of people like to say it's different. I don't think it is. It's just greatly exaggerated. So if you look at like annual budgeting bureaucracies at any large enterprise, we have that too, except for ours is has a two-year lead time. So you have to submit your, your budget two years before the year of execution, um, not the month before the next year starts. Uh, and then it has to go up to Congress for approval. So like getting your budget is an act of Congress, literally. So it just greatly exaggerates everything. But to your point, the thing that I found that is overlooked is this benefit that everything is well-defined, very explicit. And so you don't run into moving goalposts uh, and, and vagueness and ambiguity that people that don't want to move forward can take advantage of. And so what I have found is that actually I think even though it's exaggerated and, and the scope of it is so much larger, the bureaucracy in the government is easier for me to navigate than when I go into commercial companies because it's so explicit. And usually people are, uh, they've built up their own cottage industries and bureaucracies around what they think the law is. But when you just return back to the law and the actual policies that are written, they're usually not that bad. So everybody told me, I said, look, in order to, to transform the DOD, like not be disrupted on a battlefield, we need to be able to continuously deliver valuable software that users love. Continuous delivery requires in the DoD a continuous authorization, and a continuous authorization requires continuous implementation of what they call the risk management framework. And that is, you know, NIST uh, guidance, but it's on the basis of a law called FISMA, right? And when you trace back to that, everybody's like, you won't be able to do this. RMF is terrible. FISMA is terrible. There's no way you can continuously deliver software. And right there in like the first page of the RMF, it talks about continuous uh, delivery of software, right? And that you can adapt the RMF to any software development lifecycle. Yeah. Uh, just like thing after thing where it's, 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 uh, it's explicit. And so I, I think people, the first step in bureaucracy hacking is you can't hack a bureaucracy that you don't understand. And just taking time to really deeply understand and empathize with the bureaucracy. And you treat it just like you do software problems, right? We start with empathy. We practice user-centered design, right? So like, oh, the assessors that do the authorizations, like I'm going to go do user interviews with them. I'm going to find out what their pains are. And I'm going to help them solve their pains. And when I help them solve their pains, I do two things. I design a solution for the bureaucracy and I get a new lifelong fan that helps me hack the bureaucracy with them. And uh, it, it becomes this powerful flywheel. Right. Yeah. Side it's note, like those individual... I call that the... Oh, go ahead, Tony. Yeah, as a side note, I just call that the charm offensive because maybe you wish that you could just order things for free, but you don't. You don't. In, in industry, there's an 18-month delay on budgeting, mm -hmm. but they have no, as you say, they have no standard, right? So it's even harder. I, I agree. Um, but you have, and you have to choose what to go on a charm offensive. So I, I'm, I'm processing. It's not just the charm offensive, though, because we had uh, someone else on the show. I can't remember the name of the guest right now. Maybe you can help me, Tony, who will do. In, in facilitation techniques talks about arranging the team against the problem. So instead of the team sort of facing each other and being arranged implicitly against each other, if you're in a conference room, the physical manifestation of this is the problem's up on the whiteboard and the whole team is physically arranged in space against it. This is the same thing that goes on when you start getting back around to the actual requirements that people who are working on in one of these large bureaucratic organizations who are the enemy of these types of projects in so many people's minds. Don't arrange yourself against those people. You need to figure out how to arrange yourself with those people against the problem and then 
things break loose and ideas start moving forward and so on. And this only works if you can actually deliver value and if they could believe, if you can credibly get them to believe that something is possible. Alex Tran was the name of the person who gave us this phrasing, and I, I think we're going to keep using it. I love Alex. He's great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, you've you've met him before. Uh, this is the amazing thing. Many of our guests know each other because of the network uh, effect, but. We, we, are, I, we have to pause. Let's do a quick station identification. It's Tuesday, January 16th, 2023. You're listening to Radio Free XP with Brian Kroger. Okay, gosh darn. Alex Tran is a designer. I just, for, for those, for people who know him, he's a designer. What does des designer mean something magical to the three of us? Mm -hmm. We know how, we know that these people know how to think about users. So let's just, let's just put a pin in. When we talk about Alex and we talk about designers, these people are amazing. Okay. So mm -hmm. I'm, I can't, I'm and determined in, order, in 2000. In order to succeed as a designer and in order to do what we mean when we talk about designer, and you can use the words user experience or UX to, to sort of like subslice which designers we're talking about, the level of facilitation and research skill, which they then bring to every domain of like, how do you talk to teams? How do you align a group of people? How do you really listen to what people are saying? Gives us things like this. And y'all were using this sort of person in your practice, right? Like you, you had uh, mm -hmm. some, some was balanced team part of the, the conversation or the intent, or was that a, a, a an outside concept? No, it absolutely was. We Every product team had a, a product manager, a product designer, uh, and software engineering pairs. When it was data intensive, we would roll data engineers right onto the team versus having separate projects. So our balance team was always fit to solve the problem that we faced. But I actually just posted on LinkedIn today that uh, every single team, I'm a firm believer, even platform teams, uh, have to have a product manager, a product designer and engineering uh, as their core. And I think if nothing else, this leaves everyone is usually in a situation to facilitate conversations between the other two groups. So like so many teams suffer from a lack of facilitation or a lack of someone doing this mm -hmm. orientation of bureaucracy hacking, even just within the bureaucracy that emerges within a single three person team. Uh, you can help each other out in keeping, you know, that that configuration of people aligned against the problem. So, yeah, I just quick, quick go ahead. note here, though, I just like because we've talked about designers doing facilitation. We're firm believers that everybody on the balance team should have consultative skills, including facilitation. Absolutely. Um, when you're doing transformation. So I see a lot of teams rely or over rely on their designers to do facilitation. And I think it's really important that particularly anchors have facilitation skills because I mentioned earlier, you know, there's so many problems to solve. You can just go, go, go. But at some point, uh, and this should be led by your product manager, was another interesting tangent that I see go wrong in so many enterprise labs engagements. You have a product manager that becomes a second UX designer instead of representing the the product or the mission is you have to start bringing together the value proposition, which usually in large enterprises is not just one value stream, but bringing several together. And underneath that value stream mapping is technical domain mapping, domain-driven design. And like your engineering anchor has to be all over that. Absolutely. Okay. I, and I, when I talk about I, Tony. I gotta pause, on. I gotta pause for no, I gotta pause for a synthesis. I gotta pause for a synthesis. Because everyone who's a pivot knows everything that everyone here is saying, but this is for people who are not pivots. So I wanna I just wanna try to frame this up. In less than a year, you found a three hundred and fifty million dollar problem. And how much money did you spend to solve that three hundred and fifty million dollar problem? Uh, 1.2 million. You spent 1.2 million. So you had a just just back of the map, napkin math, a 35x return. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so now we get into a long conversation about a balanced team. 
So what you're saying is the balance team cost about $1.5 million to save $350 million in fully funded blue ocean in the federal government. Is that right? We're talking opportunity costs there. Yes. But 99% of all federal governments are back broken like this. Yes. And $1.5 million might with a small team, because when you say balance team, what does the rest of the world think? 40, 50 people sprawled out over a bureaucracy trying to solve a problem. But Mm -hmm. a balance team is how many people? It was six people. And and is six the right number to attack any bureaucratic or agency style problem? I would never go larger than eight for the most part, unless it's temporary. These are the parameters that people who don't know what we're doing need to know. You're an Intel officer. Also, uh, you graduated from Purdue, right? No, no. No, I went to a small private school. A lot of people think I went to Cornell University, but I went to the other Cornell, Cornell (laughs) College. Oh, hey, Cornell College. I know someone else who went to the other Cornell. uh, Okay, guys, we we do love each other. The network is good and the network needs to expand. Here's the straight line on this. When people hear us talk about a balanced team, they think I'm going to have to go bootstrap a 50-person bureaucracy to look at this huge 50, just just plain old $50 million laying around spent stupidly problem. And mm-hmm. you're a professional all the way through. You jo- My experience of you is that you joined the Air Force out of obligation to the country. That's my mm-hmm. experience of you. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that every, every interaction I have with you tells me that you did all of this out of love. Mm-hmm. And when you walk into a pivotal shop, everyone is doing everything out of love. And so yeah. that's when I say it gets people who got it, it got you. Okay, for the people who don't know what we're talking about, for you have no idea what this balanced team or UX designers, which is almost everyone on the planet, here is the outcome they can produce. And Brian, keep me honest, a six-person team for around $1.5 million can map a problem, as you said, at the user interface level, at the technical level, and at the deep design level for $1.5 million. Is that a ridiculous amount to think about? No. Uh, okay, great. I, we're just we're walking along, right? And, you're, and you're a hard professional. To be clear, that team can also and will need to in order to to do this. It, that team has to be able to manage itself and self-organize, and it needs to be able to go deep on the organization that it's interacting with, because that mm-hmm. team is going to directly have to handle those stakeholders too. That team is is inclusive of the people who are doing the stakeholder and bureaucracy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the I think problem- there's there's maybe one caveat, and that's when you're looking in federal government. I said earlier you need continuous authorization and continuous RMF. Uh, that led to a fundamental belief. I call it like an, an axiom that uh, PaaS is a prerequisite for DevOps outcomes in the federal space. So a six-person team outside of our space can easily spin up their own infrastructure the first time around and like do what they need to do and, and get the experiment out the door. That's a little bit more unrealistic in in government in actually being able to ship to production. So we were lucky in that there was an existing government team Pivotal was working with to stand up PCF, uh, and we just rode on their platform the first time. Yeah. So this I once, forgot. We don't I want forgot. to turn this into the the PaaS sales thing, but I will say real quick, like that's a prerequisite that I think is required anywhere. I think you need a smooth mm-hmm. path, to pr- path to production and you can sometimes mm-hmm. find a PaaS like product that will work for your corporation if you're or like as a startup, you can sometimes be like IaaS is close enough to PaaS for our purposes or whatever. But like if you're operating within a large organization and you want to enable these sorts of people, this is why Cloud Foundry I sometimes talk about as being as impactful as the whole labs model in terms of actually 
making these sorts of transformations happen. Yeah. So like I, I think I think the fact that you have to bake compliance into your pass, like that's one of the functions besides giving devs the infrastructure they need, it's giving them the compliance support that they need. That's where I think that becomes an insurmountable task to do by yourself the first time around. Yeah. If if you're if you're going for speed and, and efficiency. Well, and again, I'm but, just gonna say that's not unique to the federal government or even very large enterprises. Enterprises want that. Mm -hmm. we, we have a relatively limited amount of time, and we've spent a bunch of time so far talking about you know this one project and this one history that we all have uh, experience with. But my understanding is, upon retiring from the military, Rise 8 is now out here doing this. This is like, okay, well, now we know how to do this. We have a capability that is just astoundingly better than who we are competing with and we're we're out here just repeating this outcome tell us about that like where is rise eight and what is it doing and i yeah. need a number on how much better it is we have <laughs> we're starting to well no because this is for people who are trying to understand what we're doing because it sounds insane mm -hmm. and so i need numbers you're you're in the business start with the top it, how long have you been in business uh i started in summer of 2019 so okay and it's it's the beginning of 2024 what did you start with people wise and what do you have now i was solo for the first year I hired my first person during covid It'd be like may of 2020 uh, i'm at uh, 70 70 people okay so you've grown organically in four years with 70 people how hard how much time toil and tears was it to get to 70 people <laughs> a lot more than I ever imagined. Yeah. Uh, startups are hard. Bootstrap startups are even harder. And then bootstrap startup in the federal government. Uh, but yeah, it's... it's uh, To, to de-jargon that though, the, bootstrap means you didn't take VC funding to achieve that sort of scaling pattern. That scaling pattern is based on money you were able to provide or raise yourself plus money you got from contracts. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I didn't even have money to invest. When I left the Air Force, uh, I had some like personal things that had happened. I left the Air Force with like $4,500 in my bank account um, and got my first contract. I worked solo for a year to build up a pad to hire my first employee. And then I just used a like really, really, uh, actually Tony and I have talked about this. I use the scaling up framework. So I'm really anal about cash flow and using cash flow to funnel growth. Uh, so I just got really disciplined on cash flow and I've been able to maintain a, a more than a 50% growth weight. In the early years, it was like 300, 400%. But now we've leveled off at 50% year over year growth that we can maintain without taking uh, credit. Okay, I got to touch that. The book, Scaling Up, just give me your two minute brief on why. Why do we use Scaling Up? Uh, I believe that you need a, a framework to... to run anything. I think systems and frameworks are important. Um, you know, their main focuses are on people, strategy, execution, and cash. They use the Rockefeller habits, if you're familiar with Rockefeller habits. And I think um, I think any system will do. EOS is another great framework. There's a few. I like theirs because the first emphasis is really on people, which aligns to, you know, this pivotal labs uh, style that, that we all have. Um, and then uh, the cash piece is, is, I think, often overlooked when you're trying to do organic growth. A lot of the books and frameworks out there are based on people taking VC. And this is like the model for bootstrapping, in my opinion. And I, I just want to put in my note, like VC is not exactly the touch of death. 
for being able to sustainably do this sort of thing and scale appropriately. But there are real challenges to taking this magic six person plus capabilities thing we've talked about and growing that into an organization that continues to be capable of doing that instead of uh, becoming autosclerotic and sort of calcifying Mm -hmm. itself more and more. So having scaled as much as you have and dealing with a a federal contracting space where being at a certain size is actually required in order to take certain roles, right? There's this whole prime Mm -hmm. contracting system. Uh, How do you intend to continue being able to do this, looking around and seeing bunches of people from previous generations that we've, let me take a step back and and set the context a little bit. Since the rescue of healthcare.gov, there has been a surge of various agencies and uh, contractors and everyone trying to like bring Silicon Valley to the federal government. Like it has been mm-hmm. its own whole category of companies and efforts. And many of those that have gotten into that space, I think, have lost their mojo, have have kind of mm-hmm. come up against this problem and converted tor- converged towards the thing they were trying to replace. Mm-hmm. You seem very dedicated to avoiding that. You really get the model. You you haven't you, you know you're still focused on small teams and incredible outcomes. How how are you going to keep that? Like how have you kept that so far? Have you run into problems? And we only have like three minutes, so this is a stupid, huge question to ask when we mm-hmm. have almost no time. So I'm sorry for that, but like give us a taste, yeah. and then we'll have you back on later. <laughs> Yeah, you, you've got to you've got to focus on it, right? It's just like the ATO bureaucracy or the testing bureaucracy or anything else. This is the contracting bureaucracy, and if you want to succeed, you've got to figure out how to hack that pro, uh, that bureaucracy. I don't know if I will be successful to answer your question. Like it's it, it is an unknown. We are taking a very non traditional approach to marketing, sales, contracting in the federal government. Also, like what we're selling is very different. We sell outcomes. Um, we talk in terms of outcomes in the Josh, you know, Josh Seiden kind of framework of, uh, you know, the bridge the gap between outputs and impacts. So DoD senior leaders and, and government senior leaders are always talking about impacts. Contractor base is always talking about outputs. We're over here talking about outcomes, and it's super foreign to everybody. So we're almost having to create a market category, which is always a has a high reward, but it has a very high risk, high barrier to entry. Um, so, you know, cr- creating this new market and taking a very non-traditional approach while still living within the lines of the bureaucracy is a challenging problem. So that's, that is my focus, right? Well, everybody else is focusing on hacking those smaller bureaucracies within the customers that they're working with. I say smaller, they're just as challenging. But like I'm over here tackling the company's bureaucracy that we're having to deal with as a company and uh, I think that's where people lose their mark is they go in and a lot of these CEOs came with all the best intentions and, and but they're down on the ground helping their teams solve these problems. I can't do that anymore. I can't be the person that re-architects healthcare.gov or you know whatever it is. I've got to let my teams do that. I've got to focus on re-architecting how you do business with the federal government. It's a, sort of a, a fractal mindset of like, look, this is the same problem at a different level and I can't be three levels down from where I actually need to operate. Right. You, you have like an, you can only actually have visibility into a couple layers of abstraction around the one that you're specialized in at any given time. But you have to be able to move over time as the level that demands your attention changes. So I, I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. I heard you correctly yeah. that you're growing 50 percent year over year still. Yes. So if someone is listening to this and wants to get involved, 
is like, yes, I want to be involved in that. They should they should call you and you can find something for them in all likelihood, right? Like that's. <laughs> yes, uh, we I almost wanna... always have jobs posted, but we also have a warm pipeline and we love X pivots and X pivotal customers uh, and people who love the pivotal model, even if they didn't work with it. So um, that's a high priority for us. We'll put you in our warm pipeline and reach out to you when there is a position that fits. Okay, perfect. Warm pipeline. I have been in your warm pipeline. I signed a contract with you. If it executed, I've been in your warm pipeline. So one of the things that we're dedicated, so my, the whole reason Radio Free XP exists is so people who know how to work like this are working at a place that makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. You have a place that would nominally make sense to pivots. You run it out of books. People could read like, what would I expect when I show up? And they can mm -hmm. learn everything about you. Okay. We have a culture manifesto I'd be glad to share. Well, I'll, what uh, you could choose to read it online or you could have you could force one of us to read it and we would read your manifesto not under duress, right? <laughs> we would not have that face on our, as we read it. The, the real thing is that if you're a pivot and you know how to work like this, there are lots of pivots committed to providing you a place or honorary pivots, right? Like if you're not a pivot, mm -hmm. no one is, right? Let's just be really clear. Does that there get are, me into the Slack channel? I, I will. I will. Just messing. I, I, will, I commit the, 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 the Slack channel people and me. We do not align on the answer to that question. Uh, I think <laughs> it's hey, good that hey, I think hey, it's the, good. There's good rules. The Slack channel people are our siblings in uh, in understanding, and we could probably work out any deal with them. We'll see what we can do for you. Uh, we could also just proxy you in with a fake uh, a fake pivot, right? Uh, so <laughs> no they, I, They're dealing with a sysadmin here, right? They cannot hey, stop. You me. and I have talked about this. We only deal with honest players. I feel <laughs> like I'd be violating my honest. Player. Player principle. <laughs> Agreed, and I would never force it. Okay, so all the way to the top. If you're a pivot who wants to work in a way that makes sense to you, Brian Kroger has a company, and there is a warm pipeline. Not only is there a warm pipeline, Brian, if any pivot sent a note to you saying, hey, low priority, but I have an idea, and here I would come to work for you if you're doing this, what would you do with a message like that? Well, we certainly would add it to the warm pipeline. Depending on what the idea is, I might start go trying to, to find that opportunity so that I can start it. And I'm gonna a, go... we don't have time to get into a conversation, but we have this whole thing on micro enterprises for those that have heard Radical Enterprise by Matt Parker um, coming from the community or uh, you know Corporate Rebels and, and the Startup Factory, the Renda High model. Um, you know, there's an opportunity to also launch a startup using Rise8 as your platform. There's actually really great government grant and research programs. We know how to get access to them. And so that's also a, an option that's really interesting. Yeah, on the Radio Free XP side, we're working on a model that assumes a $1.5 million funding model to get three or four major iterations to get all the layers that you're talking about on the table. So you could say, I'm going to persevere or pivot. Yeah, and so, the Cyber grant is $1.25 million. So we're pretty close. Right. There are a lot of grants and, of this size. This is a size that a bunch mm -hmm. of program, of federal programs have been like, okay, here's an, a company buying amount of money. And there are a lot of programs that have, you know, in various spaces, you can find ways to get this amount of funding for it. Okay. Brian Kroger, we would talk to you all day. I'd talk to you all day. <laughs> And summing up for this for this time, if you're a pivot and you're listening to this, Brian has a meaningful way for you to work. So you should get in contact. And if you're someone who's not a pivot and you're like, did this guy who has incredible credibility 
in whose fate is twined with the head of Google? Did he just say that he found $350 million laying around in a budget for $1.5 million? And he did it in... Is that what I should really believe is possible here? And I'll leave you with the last word. Should anyone believe what you did is possible on their own terms? Absolutely. You can do it over and over again. There's a ton of waste that build up when money was cheap. Money's not cheap anymore. And there's a lot of ways. It's even easier now not only to uncover it, but to get buy-in uh, inside of large enterprises to do this. Thanks so much for coming on. And thanks so much for saying that because it's something that I think everyone needs to hear. So you've been listening to Radio Free XP. My co-host Tony Hansman and I have just finished interviewing Brian Kroger. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free XP. If you're interested in helping with graphics, bumper music, or other aspects of production, or if you'd like to be on the show, please contact Jesse Alford or Tony Hansman on the Pivotal Alum Slack. You can also reach us via email at jesse.alford at pm.me or precept at gmail.com, respectively.